folks, we finally got our uh, sponsorship that we've been begging for, and it is brought to you by the beautiful Golden City of uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And so, before every episode, <laughs> we're going to be playing a uh, tourist adver- advertisement. So, um, Eric, please join me as uh, we listen to the national anthem of uh, Cleveland. I guess. Hold on, let me go ahead and. A city has a and national anthem, and we're going to listen to it right now. Let me see. Ah, here we go. Let me share my screen so you can see this amazingness. Sure. Uh, crap. See, this is this is the confusing part about technology because I forgot to share computer sound. Here we go. Real great job, real great job on our first yes, sponsor. Yes, I know, episode, I know, so. but you know, the, we're working on this. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> all right thank you cleveland all right for so for our listeners who probably didn't hear it because we have headphones on it was a quote-unquote tourism video i'm assuming this wasn't officially no, made by the city this is this is a parody okay and it's just and, and they're plugging in the mayors of cleveland like saying you know been under construction since 1868 their main export is lebron james and you know Stuff like that, and then the the biggest the biggest selling point is that they're, they're not, not Detroit. Detroit, right? But I think the most fascinating part is that their uh, river catches on fire. But we have to, you know, give shout out to the the tons of celebrities that come out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio, right? We have uh, not only LeBron James, who's probably the most uh, electrifying man in um, basketball um, since Michael Jordan, but we also have. Um, Bone Thugs and Harmony, right? We we had the that famous rap group, um, Lazy. You have no idea who, who that uh, is. Bone Thugs, Bone Thugs and Harmony, yeah. No, but if, Cle- if Cleveland's gonna pay us money, sure, I'll say I'm the biggest, yes, I'm the biggest uh, fan ever. Because they had the, the uh, that iconic song Cross uh, Crossroads, very very great song, highly recommend it. And um, who else is from Cleveland? Oh, Kid Cudi, Kid Cudi's from Cleveland. And uh, you don't know who Kid Cudi is? Oh, he, he day and night. I see his first, I see his name trending on Twitter every once in a while. Yeah, because uh, before he was playing at um, I think Coachella, and they were throwing bottles at him a couple months ago. Um, he just <laughs> he just released a uh, a movie on Netflix, which is actually pretty good, uh, called Intergalactic, and he, uh, he's beefing with Kanye, from my understanding. I don't know. I mean, everyone's beefing. Yeah, everyone's every, beefing, everyone's right beefing now, with Kanye, so. yes. But also, there are two comic book legends coming out of Cleveland, Ohio as well. We have Brian Azzarello, who was known for uh, 100 Bullets, and I think Moonshine. Yeah, Moonshine with Ed- Eduardo Riso, and Brian Michael Bennis, right? Uh, started off doing his own independent thing uh, with uh, Goldfish and um some story about him trying to sell a movie in hollywood which was pretty whack torso oh, and torso uh torso, torso yeah okay. and um then moving on into yeah. marvel like really creating a prolific run on daredevil uh the prolific run with avengers uh crater of, crater of Morales. Morales, right Pro- very big prolific run after um Ultimate Spider-Man, and then jumping ship to DC to do a a very boring run on uh, Superman, and uh, <laughs> co-creating Naomi with uh, David F. Walker. So you know, shout out to my Brian Michael Bendis. Yes. Yeah, which adapted it to the one hit, one season wonder yes, on the which, CW. <laughs> which I mean, I blame Naomi for not uh, allowing allowing us to get the pin, uh, painkiller spinoff. So I hold that grudge. Oh, I blame Batman. Oh, yeah, for sure. Black Woman. But it's okay, you know, CW everything's been canceled on CW. Queen Stargirl makes yes. you very upset. Um and then now and now now Benz is actually like he's doing he's got like a book of Abrams coming out. It might even be out. Oh, really? actually. Yeah, yeah. Abrams. That's like I saw that like Abrams like, well, they're getting Bendis. they're like actually finally doing like comic stuff, not just like literary graphic novel bullshit that the publishing industry wants to do. We can talk. That's an episode for another time. So f- f- we're talking about Bendis today, but we're not just talking about any Bendis book. Like we've covered him a few times. He's one of the most prolific 
mainstream comics writer. And I think Phil wanted to do Daredevil originally. But wouldn't it be more interesting that we do one of his early works that no one talks about? That he also drew himself? Which is the thing? <laughs> and that's what we're doing. Jinx, by Bri- written and drawn by Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, some lettering help from uh, multiple, multiple yeah, letters. I think, I think each <laughs> issue, like a, a different letterer, letterist was on it. Yeah, but I I always think it's really fun to like take just with like any creator, right? Whether it's a comics or in film or whatever, to like someone who's like a huge name now, but look at one of their really early works to kind of see where a lot of their signature styles grew and, you know, the difference between then and now, like, you know, more mature or whatnot. Like, recently I've been watching a bunch of Johnny Toe movies, and I've seen some of his early work. It's like, man, this guy, <laughs> this guy was just, like, so different from a lot of his more, the works that, that came out later. Um, yeah, Brian, and Jinx, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, it's a lot of interesting stuff. It is. A lot of interesting stuff. Is it a good comic? Uh, we'll find out. Uh, I'm on the fence about it, to be completely honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say, to be honest, there's a reason why he's just a writer now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but I think, let's... Yeah, Jake, Smart Michael Bendis. Um, so, for, this is originally... Uh, was it a, was it a series or a graphic novel? I don't uh, think it was a graphic novel. I don't know. It's from my understanding, Jinx is a prequel to uh, his first uh, creator on comic, Goldfish, um, which mm-hmm. I've I've never read. I've only seen the picture. Uh, yeah, sorry. So yeah, it's a series published first by Caliber Comics, which I don't think exists anymore. Which should tell you, which should tell you. All yeah. And then it got re. And then it got taken over. To image, so he brought it over it to was image. image. Came out, yeah. The the printing I have is an image edition. Okay, because the one I've read, well, the one I've read, which is digital, is um, Dark Horse because of the the Jinx World imprint. And then, prior, but when I first read this, it was uh, published under Icon, uh, Marvel's, I guess, equivalent to Vertigo. Yeah, that imprint that exists essentially for these indie creators to bring their indie books under Marvel. Um, the point of it is, and part of why there's so many different publishers, this is a creator-owned work. This is, for whatever you say about it, this is 100% auteur Bendis. <laughs> like, well, this is someone who had complete, full creative control uh, of every element of, of the, this comic. Um and I think what you know, we'll, we'll go more to like how effective it is and how good it is. But I think that is something. It is something really kind of cool. I think because most people, myself included, know Bendis from his license work, his corporate mm-hmm. superhero work. So really, and then I got to see his other image, his creator on stuff like United States of Murder Inc., one of my favorite comics of his. Powers. Uh, you know, he's got Powers, right? That's another big one. He's mm-hmm. got Pearl. A new one has come out. But this is one where you get to see, like, young Bendis, mid to late 90s. Because I think this comic was originally, like, 96, Really? Because this one was, like, 2004? Uh, no, the printings. The later oh. printings are. This first came out in, like, the late 90s. This is, like, really nice. This Bendis, before Bendis got big, This is these are part of the, the that line of work that got mm-hmm. him noticed eventually do on you know ultimate marvel and all that okay. stuff but uh yeah you're seeing we're seeing like young raw i guess under you can't really call it underground but like underground in a sense uh underground ish independent alternative right, so this Bendis. is like Bendis when he was a right. warlock <laughs> oh gosh, oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, which I think is like the most fascinating thing about this too, because like a little bit about Bendis's background is that his background is in graphic design. Um, like a couple of other, uh, 
prolific uh, writers within the comic book industry, like um, Jonathan Hickman. He was also a graphic designer, as well as Brian Wood. They, um, they're graphic designers, and they wanted to make their way into comics. So what they did was they actually wrote their stories and drew their own comics. But I think the biggest thing about them is uh, they were picked up for their writing because they wrote really strong stories, but their art styles leave a lot to be desired, to be completely honest. Um, hey, well, we'll have to come back to that when we do Nightly News, my John yes. Hickman, which I will, I will, defend. I will defend. But uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting, especially because you know where people are trying out their careers, they start off thinking they're going to do one thing. And then what makes him successful is his other thing, mm. right? Like, like Katie, Katie Seagal, <laughs> or, like, like, like she actually thought she was going to be a singer, mm-hmm. right? And then, yeah, no, and she, she, she does do some singing, but you know, obviously, then she kind of went into acting, and that's what people know her as, right? From you know, Peggy, Murder Children, Leela, mm. Futurama, Gemma from Sons of Anarchy, right? Um, so I think it's just like really kind of funny to see before they got cemented into this thing that the comics were wanted to be, we're seeing like these young artists, writers kind of at their, at their before people, what they were like before then. And I think it's a really fascinating insight into kind of where the creative sensibilities came from and how it's influenced their later works. Um, so enough about, I think, Bendis' background there. Let's talk about the comic proper. So Jinx is a classic crime noir, greedy crime noir story. For those who are familiar with his work, all, all most of his early superhero work and a lot of Venice's forte, or in fact, crime comics. So there should be no surprise that this is his early creator-owned work is that. Um, like we said, it's a prequel to Goldfish, which I had not read. <laughs> um it's, it's a story that's kind of loose. This story is kind of loosely based on uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the the Clint Eastwood western. It's that you know these different these different parties, right? In this case, criminals are trying to get this pile of money. You know, more or less. That's the simple, basic terms of the plot. It kind of follows a few different characters, but the main protagonist is this um, bodyguard. No, or she's a uh, bounty hunter. Bounty Hunter, right. Bounty Hunter named Jinx. A woman named Jinx. Follow these other characters around. Uh, one that I got a kick out of is a guy named Columbia, which is like... My, I, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, this is clearly a Bendis insert. So uh, I guess at some point around, he was running around with the soul patch. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. Because those who don't know what Bendis looks like, he's like, you know, tall <laughs> white guy. Uh, and so this is a character that... You know, he puts himself in, but, it, you know, he's kind of like a sleazy character, right. so it's kind of funny. Um, and then a third character... So, yeah, Goldfish, Goldfish uh, David right? Gold. Um, and then we get introduced yeah. other side characters, too, like uh, Money B, who was a t- very interesting character, to say, to say the least, I guess. Uh, I'm going to be honest, like, this is where you're probably better, because I... I got I kind of really lost track of a lot of the characters early on, and the story was also hard for me to follow. So at, at one point, reading at, at a certain point, I just stopped kind of paying attention to the story. Looking at the I just art. Start, looking at the art and listening to the dialogue. Oh there's a God, lot of dialogue, dialogue, right? And it's very much that kind of depending on your perspective, how much your affinity for Bendis. I'm a big Bendis fan, so I'm gonna say classic. Very classic Bendis-like dialogue. Um, he tends his influences are a lot like uh, David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin. So there's a lot of like very fast-paced, back and forth yes. witty jokes, and and a lot of it funny. It's visually he he uses the comics medium and the layouts to kind of support that visually. We've talked about it a little bit when we did Jessica Jones. Uh, there's these pages where they're like they're just like. There's really no multi- there's only two panels and there's like giant there's like towers of dialogue bubbles. Um I guess I'm kinda curious, like uh just to start going into the craft, how did you feel about the way he did the dialogue? Both maybe the writing but also visually, because this is one hundred percent doing this. It is. No 
No, and I think yeah. when it comes to his dialogue, the way he does dialogue, though it is numerous, it also adds an extra layer to the art as well. And I'm not just saying this like, oh yeah, you know, like the the lettering is the art. Like no, like the the lettering and how it's presented is like very clearly a part of the art, especially the way he is able to um truly lead the eye because I mean Bendis Bendis clearly knows comics. Um, this isn't his first comic, of course. This is Jinx, which is a prequel to his first comic, Goldfish, but, you know, it came later. But I think with what he did in Goldfish, he was bringing, he was able to elevate it a lot more in Jinx. And we are able to see that, especially with the dialogue he does between Jinx and uh, Goldfish um, with their with their characters, especially on their date. I thought um, the way he had captured their date was very interesting. How do you feel about that scene, Eric? Uh, which one is it? Is it the scene? Uh, God, I could barely see that. Yeah, it's the one where there's like yes, thirty. I think it's like. 30, 40-something panels? It was, like, 40-something panels, and then, like, it would just be, like, a big picture of that. It was, like, three three columns, like, Jinx on one side, uh, Goldfish on the other, and then, like, just dialogue throughout in the middle. 48 panels. Yeah, double-page spread of 48 panels. So, this brings it kind of to a larger point, because Bendis loves writing dialogue, um, but it's, it's very tricky to put a lot of text in a visual medium, right? Because you have... It's comics are visual. You have to show it in a way that's interesting, and you see it with a lot of like writers who are newer to comics, right? Who don't have like, people, people who have primarily a prose background. That uh, it's just walls of text in a panel because and they're not used to understanding how it works. And you know what people think about Ben is in his dialogue. I think because he has a visual design background, he knows when he knows how to play. He knows how to design a page to make the dialogue work. Yes. Um, so, like this double page spread where it's just forty-eight tall narrow panels, it works with all this dialogue and back and forth because with tall narrow panels, you're just seeing one subject, one expression, and you're going back and forth. Right. It's the equivalent of like in film of just like two people are at a table and it just cuts between over the shoulder to the one to the other person over the shoulder. It really works for rhythm because you just each panel is small and doesn't have a lot of visual info, so you're able to just go back and forth really quickly and read through it really fast, which works with the dialogue because it's not super lengthy in terms of like there's only like one or two right. bubbles per panel, so you can go back and forth. It makes a good sense of banter, right? And I know there's a lot of discourse. People are like, you know, like the Marvel movies are like too much witty quips and whatnot. And a lot of that is from the comics, and a good number of that is from Venice's influence. But I think it's very important to keep the context of when this comic was made in the mid to late 90s. But this was still very fresh. This was very, very new, at least in this kind of, this genre of comics. Yes, because right? now, I mean, yes, because, like, we're, technically we're still within that, like, dark age period of, like, adult comics, adult comic books for adults, like, you know, the Frank, your Frank Miller uh, Dark Knight Returns and like you know Watchmen and stuff. So yeah, and, and the '90s is still very artist visual driven, right? These let these rock stars like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and all those people, and, and you can see why it crashed yeah, yeah, because yeah. of that. <laughs> it wasn't writer driven; it was driven by like a certain aesthetic. Um, and the same thing like in the indie realm, right? That was still not super writer driven like this. At least as far as I know, like no one. Like, Fantagraphics didn't really exist yet. It was still, I think, like, kind of weird. Yeah, I, I, I can't do anything uh, within that realm. So, but, like at, like, at the same time, like, there, was, there wasn't really... There wasn't anyone trying to do, like, rapid-fire dialogue, right, uh, in, in comics. Not characters talking like this. At least none that, were got, that got big, at least. So it's... At this time, uh, you have to keep that in mind when you're reading an earlier work, mm -hmm. right, of a creator... It's like considering the context in what it was in, and it's you know it's not surprising that yeah this led to him getting hired by Marvel because he not only mimics you know Mamet and all these famous dialogue TV movie writers, but he do he does kind of make it work. 
mostly in in this visual format. And these techniques he would later bring to his own comics, and then would influence, for better and for worse, a whole, a whole like a decade of like how to visualize comics with a bunch of dialogue, right? All these like multiple grid patterns, right? right? Or uh, right, just a single page yes. spread. It's just one image of chinks and, and goldfish and, in bed, and there's just like a, just, a tower just, above, just cascading bubble dialogue bubbles going all the way through. It's 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 nuts, but you know, I have my beast with Bendis, Bendis, but you know, reading this, especially like I think that's my appreciation comes from for these for these works is that like the um, it 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 just works because of the the newer stuff. Uh, so like that's that's I think that's the, the the fascinating aspect of it as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there there are definitely a few moments in, and, and you know the thing is that as he kept doing it in his career, and even a few moments here, it can be a little much with like a, a, all the dialogue covering up so much. Um, but it's still like I think a decent amount of restraint and I, I think it's later on. And like his mainstream stuff, like Avengers, X Men, that maybe it got a little much, and what people got sick of it. So, matter of fact, let's just let's just get jump into the nitty gritty. So, like, I have this page that is uh, <clears throat> what's it called? That's up here, and we're looking at this, right? We see Bendis. So we're looking at this this uh, this page here, right? We get to see the Bendis insert character Columbia, um, you know yelling acting as if he's like you know i'm not a crazy guy what are you talking about i'm not a loser and the first thing that really speaks that like jumps out to me is the is the background right uh the background that ben is uh used here is uh what's it called is photographs that he has turned black and white almost as if it's from like a xerox copy and he draws his figures on there uh, Bendis uses a, a technique called chiaroscuro, um, Italian word for high contrast, essentially, where uh, a lot of his figures are within these uh, black and white um, in order to create shape and value. And, you know, black and white is also cheap when it comes to comics, right? Because you're printing a 400-page book. So when it comes to this, a lot of his characters do get lost. Um, within his backgrounds because of how great granular they are and when I first started reading this I found it very very jarring what were your thoughts on it Eric yeah it was like visually with like this heavy shadows and this high contrast art it was pretty tough to get into uh, even and even after like even like halfway through and whatnot it's it's still hard to kind of discern where the stuff is. Like, the immediate contrast I brought it in my head is mm. Sin City. Right? Frank Miller's Sin City. And we all know Frank Miller's crazy. Let's not get into that. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of his actual technical skill, visually, and, and Sin City is, is uh, yeah, I would Sin say, a masterpiece. Yeah, is Frank Miller's magnum opus. Visually, visually. Let's not talk about anything else. All right? But he knows how to use shadows. He knows how to do the, the how to do black and white art mm. really well. And I was like actually looking at pictures from the Sin City comics and comparing and contrasting to what Bendis does here. Okay. And you know, it definitely trying to figure out what makes it work so well in Sin City because it's super stylized. It's heavily stylized, but there's still there aren't really the same clarity mm. issues. But that's more here with. Uh, jinx and i think it's because and you can maybe be speaking more to this because you're more on the illustration than i am is that with sin city a lot of the contrast is very it's not literal it's sometimes just very symbolic yeah. right there's like a famous page of like dwight or whatever whatever bruce Willis's character right it's in the, it's in the cage mm -hmm. right and it's just like the cages are white against everything right. else is black Right, it's a very stark image. If you're trying, it's like the actual lighting. It's sort of the physics of the lighting of the scene. It doesn't make any sense, but it looks yes. cool. Here, I think it feels like kind of like a maybe like a halfway point. Like some of the lighting and the shadows are like trying to fit, you know, rules of lighting, 
and some of it is also trying to be stylized, and it's kind of hard to tell. Yes. Um, like, like I think Bendis, especially when it comes to, like, uh, drawing people, like, he takes the, the, I like to call it the Mike Mignola, uh, rule, where it's like, yo, if I don't know how to draw it, just cover it in black. And from what it seems like, Bendis doesn't know how to draw a lot of different things, so he throws in a lot of different blacks. <laughs> and Yeah, there's a lot of blacks everywhere and because of that it's kind of hard to tell where certain things are i learned this myself in grad school because my comics were black and white because you know i was learning to draw for the first time so i i didn't want to really want to learn mm. with shading um so like we have, let's talk about specifically like this double page spread right it's uh columbia slash bendis <laughs> uh throwing a dice and he's talking to some people mm-hmm. And it was kind of hard to follow, like, where does your eye right. go? Right. Um, part of it is kind of helped by the panels a little bit. But, yeah, because of the black placement, black placement, it's hard to tell what is a shadow, right? What is just a, sh- a shadow for the background? And what is, like, an actual figure or important visual info we need to know? Like, this hand, right, that's throwing the dice. It's just all in black and it's white. But the gutter next to it is also pure black. Mm-hmm. And then it's next to a panel with shadows underneath dice. So it's a little hard to tell where things begin. Right. And so like, I think that's 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 the, the drawing part. Because like, even looking at this right now, like it is like visually hurting my eyes. Um, because of how, of how much is going on into it. But I think also that was a deliberate choice in order to like really get the sense of like you being the dice. So like, you know, Columbia shaking the dice in the hand. We have these uh white panels behind, right? The tilt and twist of the uh box shaped panels within the page in order to like really convey that sense of vertigo. Um which I thought was kind of interesting. But like again, whether whether it works um or is a is a whole different story. And I think again the uh, the page in Invincible where they're doing a lot of beat panels. We we see this a lot here, right? That that that, that, par- that, that parody of Robert Kirkman spoofing Bendis, which I think I think it's a jet. I think it's a not a mean spirited jab. I think yeah, yeah no, I think it was like a, a little like... a little nice like gentle push. Because but I mean you can see that here, right? With um, this panel here, the hand, panel here, the hand, here with the face, the only thing changing the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention, that's also, that's also the thing Bendis, he didn't, he was, I don't think, he didn't really, he wasn't the first person in mainstream comics to use it, but he made heavy use of, like, decompression, of just, like, repeating panels with mm. nothing happening in order to emphasize mm. silence or, or extended yes. pauses. Uh most of the time is effective. Sometimes it's a little much. Uh, the se- the sequence here, I think I'm a little bit on you. It's like there's a little bit of it. Is a little is a little bit. It, it, yeah, you know, some it doesn't quite work. Um, I think it's also what makes it difficult is that everyone's faces are always in shadow. Yeah. Right. It's and it's like it's hard to t- and that's part of why I had such a difficult time just following the characters is that because everyone's faces are always in shadow, like, it's hard for me to tell who was <laughs> Right. And I think it's, it's like, cause you got this guy here with like, I don't know if that's hair or a cap, but I'm guessing like looking at these little lines in this part, I'm guessing it's hair with the sunglasses. And then, you know, this guy over here who kind of looks like, like Sid Vicious, I guess. And then you got this guy over here, all, all of them in shadow. And then, you know, carrying it on, we got these extra characters, very uh, exaggerated, you know, clearly, you know, background, not even background characters, but thugs you'd see in any sort of crime noir film, uh, well, modern crime noir film, not like, you know, I guess, what is it, um, The French Connection, uh, maybe. No, it's not, no, it's very neo, very neo-noir stuff. Um and that, like, this this story, there's a story, this character is, like, classic crime noir than this, like, every, every, it's, you know, mixed morality, everyone's kind of criminals, and some people are pieces of shit, but even the good characters are not, or some have, you know, a little bit of pieces of shit. Exactly. Um, 
everyone's just driven by money and backstabbing. Um, so I'm just kind of questioning about this unique aesthetic, right? We have this heavy, heavy shadow, heavy stylized black mm-hmm. contrast, and we also have this use of, of, for lack of a better term, Xeroxy use of like background right. reference, right? Because very rarely, I don't even think at all actually he draws. No, there's like very, very few like background drawings he draws, right? right? Most of it is like, this deliberate stylistic choice of taking a, fo- a photo reference. Because there's very heavy, very, very heavy reference use in this comic. And he just, like, puts on the filter to make it look like kind of like those greedy right. photos. Because, like, here, for example, on this page, like, he's drawn this background. But, again, it's covered in shadow. Um, let's see. And then over here, there's not really much in terms of background. But, yes. Um, sorry, what was your question going to be, Eric? I was going to ask you, how did you feel this particular aesthetic work? for the story he told is it like what is it trying to do making it just so high contrast black and white com- combined with this use heavy use of reference with this uh grainy filter and so what is, what is it doing to the story you know what kind of tone and whatnot and then be how effective did you think uh so i mean again right it's a it's a neo-noir uh crime story and I feel like these types of stories, they, of course, benefit from, like, this high contrast black and white type of style. So I think that direction that Bendis was going in was was great, very um, ideal. But it's just the juxtaposition between his figures and the background. Because the background, yes, you want it to have a thinner line weight in order for your characters to stand out. But, like, it's... It's just so jarring, and it's the contrast is just so different versus these characters that it 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 just hurts the eyes, and it was very annoying. But it overall it does work. I think it took me a while, but I I did kind of like it, right? Because comics is about creating, you know, you're visualizing this specific world, mm. right? And when you're, when you're cartooning something, it's not a literal. It's not just photos, right? Like, like, there's a reason why nobody makes comics of just photos, right? right? Uh, that would. Be, I mean, well, know. to be fair, uh, that we should talk about this uh, image comic. Um, damn, what was the name? I forgot the name of it now, but there was one where they used a lot of collage, um, photo collage, in order to make the comic, which was very interesting. Yeah, there is like it is like kind of a jarring thing between kind of how kind of cartoony Bendis's figures are. And I think partially a lot of it has to do with just his skill as as an illustrator, as opposed to like any the 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 concept of that stack mm-hmm. itself, right? Like I feel like maybe a more skill, a more technically gifted illustrator could have made that work better. Um, but I just found it really fascinating to just see these backgrounds, these straight up just like photos, like obvious. They're very obviously photos with with this grainy filter and it conveyed a sense of like realism Mm. in my opinion like uh these are real people and set in like a real world real stakes um at the same time it's like it's not ultra realistic right that's why there's this grainy filter right the like everything in this under underworld of Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like these are the streets, you know, it's this heavy stylized, like everything's grainy, nothing is real, everything's up for sale. I think the kind of cartoony element helps a little bit in that this is it's a hyper stylized realism, but it's not ultra realism, right? We're not talking I don't know. We're not. We're not talking like like Joe Sacco. Oh yeah, yeah. Journal, no, history this journalism. Is not, this is not Palestine or footnotes in Gaza. Yeah, no. It's still genre. It's still very. That's perfect. It's very genre. Yes. Still, right. Because this, this hits all the this hits all the genre notes. Um, people might call it cliche. I wouldn't maybe necessarily blame them for that, but it, it just hits everything. Well, the characters, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they dress. We got these super stylized sound effect bubbles. Yeah. Uh, on itself is like a little high concept, but I think it this aesthetic works, you know, conceptually at least 
for this genre of noir telling. Because, you know, we've covered a lot of noir comics on its podcast, and it's interesting to see so many different approaches visually. Mm-hmm. People do mm-hmm. it. And this is like the most, like, noir Chinatown esque one. Yes. Because, right? like, this is, I mean, because especially like Bendis, like Bendis, Azarello, Brian Wood, um, who else? Uh, Jonathan Hickman. Ed Brubaker. Ooh. I was going to say Ed, 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 Ed Brubaker. Like, they, they all come in this wave of, like, crime noir, um, really selling these, like, really gritty, dirty stories about, like, you know, bad guys and good guys, but they don't really exist. It's just everyone is morally gray. And you don't really have anybody you want to root for. But you still want to see how it uh, turns out in the end. Uh, that's also part of why a little bit issue with the writing was just like I, I, I did find it difficult to like care about. Part of it was just I had trouble just figure out who was who. Someone part of everything in shadow. But part of it was just like I, I wasn't really sure who to root for. Um, here's the interesting thing: like towards the the latter half of the book, we get this se- extended sequence of of Jinx's flashback. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about reference, right? It's like her flashback. It's all, it's all photo reference with that Grady filter. It's none of it is, none, maybe very few of it is drawn, right? Right. How do you, how did you feel like this this sudden stylistic shift? Oh my god! I, uh... So for, yeah. So for those who don't know, like it's kind of like the plot takes a pause because it's kind of climaxing, and we just take this sort of extended flashback sequence to young jinx and uh, find it. Uh, other other characters and like they're like teenagers in like the 80s or 90s and all of it like all of it uh, not just the is. backgrounds the figures too are all people like actual people yeah. photos of people and he puts this greeny filter so that which i thought was a really interesting choice to, to do this in this comic yeah How i i I I am not the, I am not a fan of this. This this threw me out of the story, um, because again you've set up this visual language that though I was not a I was not a fan of in the beginning, I had gotten used to it. So you know, high contrast, uh, cartoonish like people with realistic backgrounds with some hand-drawn backgrounds you know thrown here and there so all of a sudden everything being in being a picture with this strange ugly gritty filter on it 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 almost like made me want to put down this book i i almost stopped reading just because of this flashback uh interesting interesting reaction i thought i kind of dug it I just thought that it should have started with this. It should have opened mm-hmm. with this. And then get into like your more cartoony drawn figures as adults. Uh, then you can see, it, you cited kind of this contrast, right? That maybe when they're young and they're in their heads, imagining this world is more grounded, right? It's, it's a different, it feels like it's two different worlds, which is why mm-hmm. I like about it. That if we really want to illustrate this time of their lives, they were just different people because they were still young and innocent mm-hmm. to some extent. Uh, and kind of Jinx is kind of getting that innocent worldview shattered. I like that, like, to help sell that tone mm-hmm. change. You change the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it should have been so late in the story. I think this would, this would have, this should have been much earlier to make mm-hmm. it work. Because, yeah, like you said, it is super jarring to have it come at towards the end instead of towards the beginning. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, it again, I mean... That's an interesting take. I, I can see that working. Um, but you know what my favorite uh, page... Well, yeah, my favorite page out of this entire comic was is the fake ads he did in the very beginning. Uh, let me see if I can find those. Uh... Oh, was good. I thought you were talking about like the Jinx comic flashback. No. Just like a... Imaginary, like what is, what is Jinx's story? He gets like these other artist friends to like do like a Conan the Barbarian thing. It's, I thought no, it was, it was the uh, story where it was um, it was like you know those like so back in the day how like in the floppies you would have like oh like Captain America saved the day thanks to Hostess 
thing. Yeah. Right. So it was like something like that. Where um the first one was uh Columbia like shoved it up some kid's butt like because like, hey no it's a tasty pastry thingy like no I think it's more of a of a um what is what is it called a suppository and then, and then like the kids walking away like seeing the cream fall out of his butt and then like yeah, I thought that yeah. was actually I thought that was funny yeah genre throwback um it's kind of like little bit little things like that I really like about this comic for you know whatever i feel at least this is just for me whatever its foibles and its flaws like this is 100 percent yes right this is you can tell he just threw everything he wanted and everything he liked into this comic it's like let's just try this this this, and that you know we got our crime influence we get we got like our old school superhero influence we got all these other things and you know who's just read so many bendis comics uh, both from like the superhero stuff, but also his later creator own mm. stuff. I thought it was just kind of cool and refreshing to see, just like just no restraint whatsoever, right? And he's probably better creator for that to have more restraint for that. But it's just kind of cool to just see like someone, this creator, just throw everything in, just like throw everything but the kitchen sink, and see the story that maybe it's not one hundred percent very mm. coherent. You know, but I admire the kind of bonus of it because yeah. uh, you definitely you could t- this is for whatever it's what it's worth. I think it's definitely the type of comedy you can only make as a young creator and not the type of comedy you can make today. Oh yeah, definitely. I I 100% completely agree with that because I mean it's you can see the ambition and, and that era, and that era of sorry I was gonna say that era of comics too, right? Because like. You know, the industry's in major shift, right? Like, you had the big crash, right? Mainstream doesn't know what to do. The, the like, the literary publishing world does not, doesn't even know what comics is yet. There's no Raina <laughs> Telemeyer, no Craig Thompson, right? People just have mouse, but that was, like, yeah, 10 mouse, years ago. God. I think, well, Persepolis is <laughs> and, and it's a very Yeah, yeah, like, we're, we're not the Persepolis yet, so it's, like, there's no space for this, like, genre. It's not superheroes, but it's still genre alternative stuff yet. So, like, this type of story could only be told in that time when everyone's just having... We, we, everyone's failed. We've all failed. Everyone's out of work, <laughs> right? So we have to just take risks. So that's kind of what I admire about Because now, like, Bendis can never make this kind of comic now. Even with the clout he has, like, he got complete credit control. I don't think... Like, I think if we were to take this to, like, Dark Horse or Abrams or whoever, they would just like, you're crazy. <laughs> we're not... <laughs> Oh gosh, and I think that I think that is the the most fascinating part about this as well, is because of you know everything that he's thrown within this comic, you're still able to see bits and pieces still show up within within the restraint. Um, Daredevil, I'd say, is the biggest example of that, um, especially with the way um, what's his name, Alex Alex Malavi. Um, is able to capture. Yeah, yeah. But also, same, same thing with Powers and Oming, mm-hmm. right? Like like another frequent collaborator. I was really surprised to see all these type of layouts that I'm used to seeing by Oming and by Alex Maleev with collaborators that Bendis himself does it in right. this book. To show that he's not just like, you know, pure writer. He has He actually has a pretty strong understanding of how comics work fundamentally visually you know whatever beast people have with you know the the visual storytelling i think that's uh that's from the style that, that's just from like maybe too much style as opposed to like a lack of understanding of mm. the fundamentals and then i also wonder too because like I'm, I'm glad you you mentioned that um about like uh, malavi oming and i think even uh, david mack actually yeah, right. That's the other right. How they're able to, I think Bendis is able to like be a bit more tight, if you will, in terms of how he, how he envisions the page, um, which allows the creator, the the artists themselves, to like almost create similar um, page layouts. But I I feel like also like after collaborating for almost twenty years. Um, they also have like a, a greater understanding of like how Bennis thinks in terms of how he lays out his script. So they don't necessarily need that like guidance that 
I would assume they he formally gave when he was uh, giving them the, sh- the the scripts that he was working on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have a feel for the type of stories you know he likes to tell and the mm-hmm. rhythm and pacing. Um, one thing, the one thing I'm with you. What throws me off about the aesthetic, right? That kind of gritty filter mm-hmm. reference. The money. It, it does throw me off when it comes for the money because <laughs> the money is never. <laughs> So it's always weird that you see like piles oh, of like actual real money. <laughs> yeah, I guess when these characters throwing it around and like you can see, like in still detail, you can see like the serial numbers, you know, the grain of the dollar mm-hmm. bill, right? It, it does throw me off, and even just the way it's positioned, right? It's it's just like the way whether it's like they're throwing money around, and it's like it's clearly like like a like. Not cut and paste is not that bad, but it's very obvious, like Photoshop. Right. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's it does always pull me out. I mean, I feel like it kind of works with the story in that they're all chasing this pile of money, and it's just causing nothing but trouble and misery. So it's like money is kind of illusionary mm-hmm. and imaginary. You know, to be kind of like a literary <laughs> theory type of thing. So it, it it works on that level to make the money look like that way too, to be that kind of jarring, but. I don't know. Yeah, it did. It really just like every single time we see money, it's always photo, clearly photo. Yeah, it's, so it was it's, good it's, again. Those those are just those little things. But I mean, also to be fair, you know, I think that because of the the way the mo- the money was portrayed, also gave it like an extra stake within this MacGuffin. Because I mean, essentially, the money is the MacGuffin, but also the money is the root of everything it's everyone's motivation money is the motivation so i guess to add like a, some sort of like realistic aspect to it also really help drive that idea home uh-huh. yeah i think it's just uh you know it, it is interesting it's effective or not is a matter of of some some debate you know personal taste but i think for whatever else people say about this book and you know, I think it's just, it's cool. It's in the fact that this is a very bold, right? There's a vision and he executed it 100%. Mm. Should he have? <laughs> maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> you know, this is one of those books that maybe an editor would have been nice to have. That like, yeah, you know, more restraint. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just kind of uh, an interesting time capsule of, of his, the seeds of what he would later do in his career. Uh, but also like what he hasn't done stuff he hasn't really done since then you know like a lot of, a lot of there's a certain type of this side is just like kind of not so not so ambition to it that I kind of really yeah. find admirable um, and it's just like yeah this is the reason why you got notice right like you do you know you, you, you see it a lot of the big steps when they do something like kind of crazy and risky and then that's what gets pick, then picked up by the publishers and and the companies to do hopefully their their sensibility onto their oh, definitely pro- their because like <clears throat> it's always it's always really cool to see um like editors like you know always looking for the next big thing and to be able to see this and be like yo this is cool this is work this will give our our personal comics the extra edge that it needs within you know comic sales because you know it's always about the eternal war marvel versus dc blah 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 so i think i think that's cool yeah let me say this is at a time when they were like because they just kind of crashed the industry Mm -hmm. themselves (laughs) you know they were just like we're desperate (laughs) we we need something (laughs We, we you know uh and that kind of desperation you know, made them take chances on something crazy like this. And it's kind of cool, cause especially because we're kind of in a similar boat right now of, like, we're doing something, like, kind of crazy and different, and hopefully someone will pick us up, but who knows? It's, uh, you know, if these people can get their heads mm. on their asses. That's for any, any editors and agents <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, Jinx, I think, is it a must-read? I think I don't think it's a must read in general, but if you're a fan of Bendis, I think it's worth checking out to see just what yes, you're I, like. Yes, I, I I agree. I also recommend like especially studying the um 
the the way he sets the dialogues on on this page and how he's able to get away with this much dialogue um a company without having it swallow the art so much um although something like this where it's just straight up text it, that is a little less yeah like this is so this is the date that i was talking about where it's just like pictures of them and then it's like dialogue and yeah it's just like a column of text in the middle and there's no bubbles it's just like yeah. almost like a script but that's definitely i've he's, i've seen that in like jessica jones and other things like that's definitely like a time-saving measure and everything quintessential bendis at, yeah. at his finest AKA the I think was it what was the nickname people online gave him the the quip the quipper of some crap. Yeah, that's Jinx by Brian Michael Bendis. It's uh weird, <laughs> weird in a good way though. On that note, I'm Eric Long and I'm Paul Fleming, and uh, we are uh, uh, I don't uh, the Drew Carey show. I was going to say, you're bringing up Cleveland celebrities. It's like the only one I would think of is Drew Carey. (laughs) (laughs) And you know all these like black rappers and black basketball stars, and I just know like the whitest like comedian ever. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, I I was thinking about that show. um, And I was like, was he actually really from Cleveland? And I looked it up. I was like, holy crap, he is.